This morning, brethren, we will be taking up verses 8 through 10 in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Brethren, let us hear God's holy word. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly array, but which becometh women, professing godliness with good works. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this controversial passage. <clears throat> the church of the living God, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the pillar and ground of the truth. She is to proclaim and preserve the gospel as well as to model its transforming power before this lost and dying world. Christ is sanctifying and cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. But as in the garden long ago, the serpent enticed Eve to cast off God's word. So it appears in our day that he has enticed the bride of Christ to cast off her clothing. Many churches now loudly defend sensual clothing <clears throat> or males and females taking off most of their clothing at the pool or the beach as an inviolable part of Christian liberty. Many professing churches once protected children from various forms of media that exposed them to shameful nakedness. Many of us now desperately try to protect our children from various church gatherings that expose them to shameful nakedness and sensuality. We have descended into an age of Christian immodesty and the public undressing of the church, which is our title this morning, Christian Immodesty and the public undressing of the church. Quite obviously, the two words, Christian and immodestly, immodesty, should never be paired. They're the kind of words that should never be stuck together. They're obviously at odds with one another, and yet that's the day in which we live. Now, brethren, I have no love for controversy. And nevertheless, controversy is inevitable when broaching this subject with conviction. 
Vincent Alsop, a Puritan preacher from long ago, set guidelines that I have attempted to follow uh, in my years of this discussion. He says, quote, Love will lend us one safe rule, that we impose a severer law upon ourselves and allow a larger indulgence to others. The rule of our own behavior should be with the strictest, but that by which we censure others, which means to disapprove or rebuke, a little more with the largest. Close quote. Moreover, as Paul says, that love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. So may God grant us the grace to live this with all of our hearts to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now before attempting to define modesty, we must grasp the essential issue of this entire discussion. If you're drowsy, if you're drifting, if something or someone is distracting you right now, uh, get a hold of yourself and listen carefully. If you miss this, you miss the rest of what I have to say in its proper context. The essential issue of this entire discussion, modesty is not first an issue of clothing. Let me repeat that. Modesty is not first an issue of clothing. It is primarily an issue of the heart. If you don't understand that, then you will run aground when it comes to dealing with this issue biblically. <clears throat> Calvin observes this, quote, We must always begin with the dispositions. For where debauchery reigns within, there will be no chastity. And where ambition reigns within, there will be no modesty in the outward dress. Close quote. He's zeroing in on the, the essential issue. It is not first an issue of clothing. It is an issue of the heart. <clears throat> now bearing this in mind then, let us consider how the Word of God defines the notion of modesty. It is tragic to me, by the way, as I begin this particular message, to have to admit and confess in public that, that we would even have to have this message. But we live in a day where the professing Christian churches, especially in culturized American evangelicalism, have completely lost their way when it comes to this particular issue. <clears throat> Dictionaries offer us several definitions for modesty. 
But for our purpose, we want to consider what Paul means when he speaks of modest apparel. You'll notice he says in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. He exhorts women <clears throat> to adorn themselves modestly. Now, Noah Webster comes very close to the biblical meaning of all of this when he says, quote, the word is used also as synonymous with chastity or purity of manners. In this sense, modesty results from purity of mind or from the fear of disgrace. Unaffected modesty or genuine modesty is the sweetest charm of female excellence. The richest gem in the diadem of their honor. Close quote. There was a book written a few years ago called Return to Modesty. And in its many chapters, it only deals with clothing in a few paragraphs. Uh, the woman who wrote that particular book had a clear sense of the notion that modesty is not something that just applies to clothing, but that it speaks of the life and how it is portrayed in the eyes of others. That is why Webster says <clears throat> it is synonymous with chastity, with purity in manners. It doesn't just affect one aspect of our lives. <clears throat> now, the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uses several words in 1 Timothy chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 9 and 10, to help us really grasp biblical modesty. He exhorts women to adorn themselves in modest apparel, and then he uses these words, with shamefacedness and sobriety. Shamefacedness and sobriety. Uh, the words adorn, modest apparel, shamefacedness and sobriety are what we want to consider for the next few moments. So first of all, the, the Greek word translated modest Modest apparel expresses uh, a range of meanings. It means respectable, honorable, orderly, beautiful. Thomas Oden comments, quote, The apparel of the worshiper, says Paul, is to be in good taste well-arranged, modest, respectful, for the adornment of the body is like God's adornment of the cosmos. Now let me run that by you one more time. <clears throat> the adornment of the body is like God's adornment of the cosmos. 
orderly, beautiful, making good sense, reflecting the natural order of things. God did things well, beautifully, and orderly. And such He expects from us, because we're made in His image. Now, the words that the Holy Spirit inspired for adorn and apparel speak both of clothing and personal conduct. Commentator William Mounts says that the words adorn and apparel, quote, have a dual meaning. Clothing and a person's general deportment. Again, let me, let me repeat that. Clothing and a person's general deportment. Paul's central concern moves beyond appearance to behavior. It would appear that the women were dressing immodestly to the point that it was causing disruption. They were becoming preoccupied with the externals of beauty. The clothing being condemned is opulent. The jewelry, excessive and neglecting things that were truly important, such as doing good deeds. Therefore, Paul says that they are to dress in a way that is in keeping with their Christian character and to concentrate on what is most important. While their dress is an issue, their attitude is Paul's true concern. Close quote. The connection between the heart and what's external. The Apostle then uses the word shamefacedness, which means reverence. It means awe. It means respect for the feeling or opinion of others or for one's own conscience. So it denotes self-respect, or a sense of honor. It also includes the notion that since people's eyes are upon you, you take into consideration the effect you're having upon them. In other words, shamefacedness is an attitude that knows where the boundaries are, and desires to stay within them. Here it refers to the decency with which women should behave. This includes the avoidance of clothing and adornment, which might be both showy and extravagant, as well as sexually enticing, says commentator I. Howard Marshall. Now, I'm quoting far more from the works of commentaries and other writers than I normally do because I want it to be clearly understood that I'm not spinning this out of my own thinking. That the very words inspired by the Holy Spirit speak directly to this subject. Now, this is a subject that can be abused in both directions. And in our day, it is. And so we want to be able to have a clear, biblical handle 
on these things. And may God help us. Paul also couples the word shamefacedness with sobriety. Which signifies a sound mind. And is rendered by some as good sense. J. N. D. Kelly writes, quote, What is probably foremost in his mind is the impropriety of women exploiting their physical charms on such occasions, meaning worship, <clears throat> and also the emotional disturbance they are liable to cause their male fellow worshipers. This is brought out by shamefacedness and sobriety. The latter stands for perfect self-mastery in the physical appetites. Self-control. As applied to women, it too had a definitely sexual nuance. Close quote. Now, taking these words together, we may define what Paul is driving at this way. Modesty is the inner self-government rooted in a proper understanding of one's self before God, which is outwardly displayed in humility and purity from a genuine love for Jesus Christ. Now let me repeat that. We get too many definitions. Sometimes we need to hear them a few times for them to sink in. But modesty, as we take the words that Paul has used to address the sisters in this passage, basically comes to this. It is the inner self-government rooted in a proper understanding of one's self before God, which is outwardly displayed in humility and purity from a genuine love for Jesus Christ. Now this brings us to the important issue of internals and externals. We've hinted at that a little bit. Now we want to take it on with a little more clarity. Internals and externals. We commonly hear today things like this. All that matters is the heart. As long as one's heart is right, it doesn't matter what one wears or how one looks. You ever heard anything like that? Have you ever said anything like that? Probably some of you have said that. I, I hate to make certain public confessions, but it keeps me honest. There was a time when I mouthed this kind of absurdity. And that's exactly what it is. But it sounds so spiritual. It sounds very spiritual. Oh, all that matters is the heart. And as long as your heart is right, it doesn't really matter what you look like or, or in, in some places even what you do. After all, the Word of God does say, For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. 
1 Samuel 16, 7. Now, from this perspective, all that matters is the internal. Now, people will generally run to this verse and they say, see, God looks on the heart, that's all that matters. Well, that's fine. You can draw that conclusion if you don't read the rest of the Bible. But if we're going to be honest and read the rest of Scripture, then it's vitally important that we interpret Scripture by Scripture and set them side, uh, set passages side by side. Now, on the other hand, those who are concerned about appearance, about dress, are usually classified in our day as Pharisees and legalists. Bound up with externals. Bound up with outward conformity to codes. As a matter of fact, I've been in circles where even using the word standard was viewed as the height of legalism. If these people have standards, well, obviously, they're bound up. They're not living the glorious, Spirit-filled life. We're just led by the Spirit. All that matters is the heart. And that's it. Now, I know, as I stand here, some of you have been taught this. There is truth in both of these notions. The heart is the most important thing. And we can become sinfully preoccupied with externals. Both of those errors can be true. However, God's Word does not pit internals against externals. One of the great problems that we all have when we come to the Scriptures is very often we'll take a verse here and we'll take a verse there and then we'll approach a subject and we'll pit one against the other. We'll make it an either-or when very often in the Word of God we find both and. Both and. And this is one of those times. The Scriptures do not pit internals against externals as such. It deals with errors in internals and deals with errors in externals, but it doesn't make them enemies. They work together, as we will see. When we are alive internally by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, we will express ourselves externally in conformity to the Word of God. In other words, holiness in the Christian is lived inside out. You don't get holy because of what you put on as such. And unfortunately, that is what many have thought about 
when they come to this particular subject. So this is a minefield that we have to steer very carefully. And I trust, I'm certainly not saying that I have mastered all of the issues involved in this, but I trust that I am giving to you what are clearly the biblical issues. And this idea of living the Christian life inside out is exactly Paul's focal point in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Women who adorn themselves, which is external, in keeping with their Christian profession and life, which is internal, is his point. They're not pitted against one another. They're to be in harmony with one another. One is to flow into the other. Not outside in, but inside out. Therefore, our dress makes the profession that we do. You can't say, oh, what you wear doesn't matter. Your exterior will make a statement about your interior, if I can put it that way. George Knight III explains in his superb commentary on the pastoral epistles that Paul is speaking of, quote, that habitual inner self-government with its constant reign on all the passions and desires which would hinder the temptation to immodesty from arising. In effect, Paul is saying that when such attitudes self-consciously control a woman's mind, the result is evident in her modest apparel. If there is purity within there will be a desire to express purity without. The internal gives birth to the external. Knight also says, quote, the reason for Paul's prohibition of elaborate hairstyles, ornate jewelry and extremely expensive clothing becomes clear when one reads in the contemporary literature, that means the literature of the day in which Paul was writing, of the inordinate time, expense, and effort that elaborately braided hair and jewels demanded, not just as ostentatious Display, not just showy, show off, display, but also as the mode of dress of courtesans and harlots. It is the excess and sensuality that Paul forbids. Close quote. Now, courtesans, if you're not familiar with that term, means high class prostitutes. They weren't just your average streetwalkers. They were found in very big money 
gatherings, courts, things like that. So what Paul is saying is that when God's precious children come together and to worship Him and to offer Him holy praise and holy thanksgiving and to give Him the glory He deserves, that they shouldn't be decked out like harlots or undressed as is more the case today. Now, after I wrote my little booklet, Christian Modesty and the Public Undressing of America, which if you have not read yet, would be very wise for you to do if you are a member of this assembly or considering membership. <clears throat> but after... Uh, this particular booklet appeared, several criticisms were made toward Knight's statement, the one that I just read here above. Now, one charge was that by appealing to history in his explanation of the text, he was attempting to interpret Scripture with ideas outside the Bible. You got that? If you read his quote there carefully... Uh, there are those that said, oh, well, you see, he's making this appeal to literature that was written in his day, back in Paul's day. And therefore, when you bring that into the scriptures, you can't do that. You're, you're interpreting the scriptures the wrong way. Now, that can be abused, by the way. But that is not an error in and of itself. We have to know and understand the times to understand things that are being said. God help us when I think about a hundred years from now what they will say about Christians who lived in our day. How in the world do you understand us? Reading our material would probably further confuse the issue. But <clears throat> the, uh, the other criticism that, that often came was this, that Paul is only talking about luxurious and expensive clothing. Not sensual clothing. Right? You understand the argument? What they're saying is that Paul is, is when he says, oh, broided hair, gold, pearls, costly ray. Well, what the only thing he's talking about there is just coming dressed to the nines. You know, that's, that's what Paul's going after. He's not talking about sensual or explicit, explicitly... Uh, <clears throat> Sexual clothing. So those, those arguments were leveled at the booklet. But brethren, both of those arguments fall to the ground when we consider the Apostle John's vision in Revelation 17. We don't have to go to current, or excuse me, to contemporary literature of that day. And... <clears throat> All we have to do is read John's account to understand why Paul is saying what he's saying. John says in Revelation 17, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore, with whom the kings of earth have committed fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, and the woman was arrayed 
in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was, was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. In other words, brothers and sisters, Paul's prohibition of expensive, ostentatious clothing is for the express purpose of preserving Christian women from looking like high-classed harlots. How do women attract men? Either with sleaze or ostentation. Such attire is not in keeping with their profession of love for Christ, nor is it the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. So, Modesty is a state of the heart, a disposition that expresses itself in a humble estimate of oneself before God. It is not rooted in self-glorification. It is not rooted in self-advertisement. Modesty doesn't say, look at me, I'm cool. Or, look at me, I'm rich. Or, look at me, I have excellent taste. Or, look at me, I'm provocative. Rather, it says, when your eyes fall upon me, May they see love for Jesus Christ. I was trying to make this point with a man that I was giving some counsel to. And he mentioned to me recently that this stayed with him. Maybe this will stay with some of you. Ladies, you must be aware, if you are not, either your father or your husband is not doing his work as he ought, that men are visually oriented. They want to see. And I challenge any man here to deny that. The multi-billion dollar pornography business is mostly male money. Because they want to see. And I said, when someone walks in front of you who's dressed provocatively, as I said to the young man, when there are a group of young men standing and watching her, I've never been in a group of them that said, wow, look at her. I bet she can pray. Not once. Not once. Man, I bet she reads the Word of God. 
can happen. Now, they may not know that about you if you are modestly dressed. But they're certainly not thinking some of the other things that they will, in fact, think as you advertise. How then do we account for this disposition of modesty in God's children? What is the root and what is its warrant? Number one, in eternity, modesty is rooted in the character of God. Modesty is rooted in the character of God. Isaiah's heavenly vision reveals the angels of God crying to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty! Holy is the Lord of hosts. Now since this holy God takes up residence within us when we are born of the what? Holy Spirit. We are to reflect His holy glory in everything that we think and say and do. Young Christians, this is vital for you. Because you are living in a culture that tells you. And unfortunately, it, it vomited out of my culture back in the 60s, and it's still with us. If it feels good, do it. If you want to do it, don't let anybody tell you not to. It's your life. Do what you want to do. We're raised with that. We, are, we grow up hearing that in the government schools. We hear it in television. It's in the literature everywhere around us. And it is absolutely vital that you understand that if you are a Christian, everything about you is to be submitted to the living God who is holy. Your basis and taste is not where it starts. It starts with the fact that there is a God and you're made in His image. And if you profess to be a Christian, you profess that that holy God dwells within you. Secondly, in eternity, modesty is rooted in the eternal purpose of God. God planned not only to forgive His people of their sins, for which we praise Him, but to make them like the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not so? How is the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, in Hebrews, he's described this way. Chapter 7, verse 26. Holy, harmless, and undefiled. <clears throat> Paul wrote, For whom... He, that is God, did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of Cosmopolitan magazine. I know it doesn't say that, does it? He can, to be conformed to the image of whatever you feel like. It doesn't say that. This, the sovereign, eternal purpose of God is that you are being fashioned after the one who is holy, harmless, 
undefiled. And God's not going to stop that work until you're like Him. So the question is, is the work going on? Is that work going on? By the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and by the illumination of God's infallible Word, everything about us, everything about us, is to be shaped and transformed towards Christ-likeness. Brethren, do you believe that? Ladies, do you believe that? It isn't a matter of what the preacher thinks as such. Now, I've got my opinions about things. I have my convictions about things. I trust that they're accurate and biblical, but I'm as fallible as anybody else. But right now, we're not talking about my opinion of the color or the exact length of things. We're just establishing from the Word of God the essential principles by which we're to live. And the professing church of Jesus Christ, if by our view of what they wear, and especially what they don't wear nowadays, is that God either isn't keeping His promise to make us like Christ, or we're in rebellion against what He's teaching us, or we're just not His people. And we need to stop saying we're His people and say we want to walk into Walmart looking just like everybody else. We want to look like lost people. We want to act like lost people. We want to bear our bodies like lost people. Thirdly, in creation, modesty is rooted in the commandments of God. In history, there is an expression of God's eternal purpose and His will. It is expressed in His law. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14 gives us the seventh commandment which says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. You say, well, what's that got to do with what I wear? It has a great deal to do with what some people wear. The larger catechism of the Westminster Standards says this in question 138. What are the duties required in the seventh commandment? Right? Now, these are the men that we love. These are the men that we have a, a warehouse full of, of literature from their own pens. The Puritans, the great writers, some of the greatest uh, 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 Christians in, in uh, any time of the period of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their love for the word, their love for purity and holiness. Uh, unmatched, certainly not matched in our generation. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 
450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.